Hey everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Jen Frey, and I'm on Instagram at Professor S. Frey. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter. Our handle is at EudaimoniaPod. In this episode, titled The Seducer, Self-Creation, and the Esthete, I am joined by author and theologian Tara Isabella Burton to discuss Kierkegaard and Oscar Wilde on seduction and the aesthetic life. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. I'm really excited this morning to be joined by Tara Isabella Burton. Tara is a fiction author and a journalist and a theologian. She has authored many works, but I especially want to mention her novel, Social Creature, and her latest book, Strange Rights, New Religions for a Godless World. Welcome to the podcast, Tara. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'm really excited to have you because you kind of hit like the exact sweet spot of my podcast. So you actually are a fiction writer, but you're also a theologian. And I'm I'm curious about that, actually. So you studied theology at Oxford. So I assume, but correct me if I'm wrong, did you study at Oriel College or not? I did. I did uh, Oriel for undergrad and then Trinity for my master's and my diesel. Um, but I was very much attached to Oriel uh I would consider myself like an, an Oriole person first, especially because I lived off site. So, um, yeah, yeah, no, strong, strong Oriole uh, loyalty. I feel really bad if anyone from Trinity hears that, but I yeah. have the Oriole well, you, get, you give off a slight Oriole vibe, <laughs> just, just so you know. But so you, so you also did your undergrad there. Why did you do your undergrad at Oxford? Um, so I wanted to do sort of theology as an undergrad and there were fewer options that I wanted the U.S. to do that um, because I wanted to be like a total nerd and study nothing else and rather than take a kind of traditional liberal arts um, BA just study theology which is something I sort of I regret sometimes only because every now and then I realized that there are sort of gaps in my ability to do math that like could have been uh, remedied with uh, sort of more traditional undergrad education but there was something about you know, the magic of going to Oxford, going to Oriel and studying theology and throwing, you know, having to do Hebrew and Greek and patristics that I wanted to do that exact program. And actually shortly after I graduated my BA, they actually changed the program uh, to make it a little bit less theology heavy or to make it more of a sort of hybrid religious studies theology uh, program. I'm quite glad I got to do it when I did. Yeah, that's too bad. Because I think, you know, I so I didn't know this when I was, I mean, I was basically completely ignorant of everything uh, when I was starting undergrad, but I definitely didn't understand the religious studies theology divide. Um, And of course, it became really clear to me what that divide was, um, because I was also interested in theology, and I thought maybe they might teach that in religious studies. And that was definitely not the case. I mean, why did you want to study theology as an undergrad? I mean, you know, you're 18. Most 18-year-olds, I think, don't have that impulse. It, 
was something I started out wanting to do specifically, I think wanting to be a medievalist. Uh, which is funny because I immediately sort of left that behind. But all, all through yeah. my teen years, I wanted to do like some version of medieval studies, which morphed into specifically, I want to do medieval theology because I'm not going to understand anything else about the medieval world unless I do theology. Um, yeah. And then it just, it sort of, I remember it was this, this I don't even uh, remember what textbook it was, unfortunately, but I was, you know, 15 and reading something off my mother's shelf. And there was some line that I'm sure has been like historiography, sort of disproved historiographically by now. But when I was 15, just seemed like the coolest thing, which was the sort of idea that, um, you know, a medieval peasant would literally see angels when they were walking around and you know, some some sort of 1940s. German <laughs> medievalist was like pronouncing upon the medieval mind that the medievals saw things so differently. And I remember being 15, like, this is the coolest thing in the world. Like they saw angels. I need to understand this. Yeah. Um, and, and while I, I perhaps no longer uh, take that with, with, without the grain of salt, um, I wanted to do that. And, and I thought, you know, I, I can't necessarily do that in the way I want to do it everywhere else. And I want to get inside the heads of, people as best I can and understand how all of the sort of disparate ideas about God and the self and the body and nature all fit together. And, and I sort of idealistically thought, I'll understand everything if I just study theology. Um, <laughs> it was uh, sort of the irony is I, I didn't grow up in a religious household at all. Um, we were sort of, you know, Christmas and Easter Episcopalian. And when I told my mother, like, I want to go study theology, she, I think she thought I wanted to be a nun. She didn't quite understand what that meant. Like, yeah, what, what kind of job do you get with that? But also, you know, where is this coming from? And I sort of went off to England and, you know, immediately realized that I didn't want to do medieval theology um, and bounced around from sort of early Eastern Christianity and Byzantine stuff into 19th century and then stayed there for nine years. Wow, cool. So did you get, did you get uh, like a PhD? Mm -hmm. Oh, a DL okay. technically, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. And, and, and who were you, like, what was your focus? So my focus was the, uh, it ended up being the theology of creation in the French decadent dandiest novel. Um, so I, I worked mostly on Joris Charles Hismont, uh, which is, uh, who wrote, of course, Against Nature, which is Dorian Gray's yellow book. Um, but it was on the um, connection between sort of ideas of creation, irony, and the artist, um, and the dandy in the 19th century novel and arguing that these were all sort of theological problems that were being worked out through the, uh, guise of questions of art and what is art. So I assume it's from, it's from that background that you chose the Absolutely. picture of Dorian Gray. I, um, I did there, I started, I actually started with Kierkegaard and Hismal on my master's and then sort of Kierkegaard vanished a bit. Um, and I got sort of went down the French decadent rabbit hole. But the problem is like, I think these books are all fascinating. Um, the sort of French decadent corpus, not all of them are very good. And what I love about talking about Wild and sort you know, probably Wild was, you know, when I was 13, how I, got into the rabbit hole in the first place um and there's something about dorian gray which makes it sort of such a great book to talk about these questions without having to do what you might do in like some of the minor he's mall novels and wade through like 500 pages of descriptions of the cathedral churches cathedral church ceilings or something there's something right. kind of crisp about wild that i really love 
Well, Wilde is really accessible. I think I heard you just say that you read him for the first time when you were 13. Yes. Um, yeah. So I read him when I was, I think I was probably 15 when I read the picture of Dorian Gray. And I just, I completely loved it. <laughs> I, mean, I just thought it was like one of the best things I had ever read. You know, I didn't have any, <clears throat> I was 15. Um, I didn't have any especially brilliant thoughts about it, but I just loved it. And I don't, I don't actually, I mean, it must've been, it must've been assigned to me, which is, which is sort of hilarious thinking about that now, but it must've been assigned in a class or, I mean, because the only other possible explanation is that some other Oscar Wilde was assigned in class. And I like read this on my own, but that doesn't seem to fit my life when I was 15 because I was, when I was 15, I was definitely not an aspiring intellectual, but um, yeah. So, so you read it when you were 13 and and what impact did it have on you? I mean, it it blew my mind in a way that like only books you can read at that age can. Um, I remember it was. I, I actually read it because I was I was in Italy. And I moved back and forth a lot when I was around that age, and it was like one of the few English language books available in this Italian bookstore. There were like five books, and I just picked it up. And I I it, it's odd now because. I think it's a book that I've had such a conflicted relationship with, with time. But when I was 13, I remember thinking like, this is the best thing ever. One should live life as art. This is a guide to living. Um, everything that Lord Henry says is absolutely spot on. And like creating oneself as a character and having a poetic life. I'm like, I'm sure my, I'm sure I'm, it is in fact the case that my teenage live journal was like tragically full of me being like, I too will one day live life as art just as Oscar oh, Wilde did. And like, so, you so know, the whole like, like the murdering didn't deter you. Not at the time, <laughs> no. Uh, and, and like, it's something that I think about now when I reread it and like, what was I like, there's, there is of course beauty there, but I just, I miss any sense of, you know, a kind of moral, question or a moral seriousness or the sort of irony of the irony for me mm. I just I just wanted to kind of make that vision of aestheticism my life which is funny because I feel like in most of my work since then I critique or condemn that particular brand of aestheticism and I think one of the reasons I'm so fascinated by it is having I don't say being memed into it but having embraced it so powerfully as like a dumb but extremely well-meaning teenager. I'm all the more conscious of just how attractive and appealing and possibly dangerous that that vision of life and art as art can be, even as it points to something good or desirable. Or I can kind of trace in my mind how I sort of got from Dorian Gray to doing theology. That's so interesting because I had like the opposite experience as a teenager reading this. And that is to say, I thought it was a very moralizing book. And so I was very confused, one, by the by the preface, uh, which we'll talk about, um, which is all about art for art's sake, was kind of um, a defense because when when this, I mean, I think it was originally like a novella or it was, it was like serialized, you know, yeah, it yeah. came out a, a bunch of, it came out as a series in a, in a magazine. It was, I can't remember if it was like banned or, or sent or censored, but it definitely offended people. 
who thought it was immoral. And um, I was always like really confused by that because I thought it was a, sort of an intensely moralizing story. Almost, almost like a warning. It seems so clear to me that uh, one of the, of course, the main character is Dorian Gray, but the other, one of the other main characters is this figure who it seemed obvious to me was like detestable. <laughs> that was Lord Henry, is it Watton? Lord Henry Watton. Yeah, uh, or Harry, uh, as he's often referred to in the novel. You know, he's not a good guy and he's not written like he's a good guy. Your reaction makes better sense of the preface than mine. So, or your initial read of it. So, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's more fitting to the text itself. But before we get into the text itself, I just want to say, mostly for our listeners' benefit, is that so you chose two texts for this podcast. One is, of course, Oscar Wilde's novel or novella, whichever. Is it a novel or a novella? Short. I go for short novel, but... yeah. It is short, <laughs> dear listener. <laughs> you, could, you could read it uh, on a long Saturday. But then you also chose Kierkegaard's um, Seducer's Diary. Yep. So there's a question about what that text is and why you chose it as, you know, kind of a compliment to the, to the wild. So I think what I love about these two works, and I think Kierkegaard is often under like the early Kierkegaard in particular, his work on irony, I think dovetails really interestingly with Wilde's work on irony and art, uh, perhaps from a more explicitly or, or as well as viscerally critical perspective. But they both deal with the question of, or, or the idea of a particular kind of seduction. And it's the seduction that's not, it's erotic, but it's not physical or sort of explicitly sexual. And I think in both cases, so in the Seducer's Diary, it's the sort of telling of the, let's say, emotional seduction of uh, a young girl by, um, or a young woman by, the, by this sort of dandy-esque figure. And in the case of the seduction of Dorian Gray by Lord Henry, and in the case of the seduction by Cordelia, by, of Cordelia by the anonymous seducer, I think he sort of maybe called Johannes, maybe not, the lack of a stable name is part of the point. Um, in each, each case, we have a kind of innocent whose um, sense of self is warped and corrupted by someone who takes an erotic pleasure in creating a character out of a human being, of destroying someone's subjectivity and kind of rendering them, you know, a minor character in the drama of the hero, which is also how I read Dorian Gray. It is the sort of seduction of Dorian by Henry. And yet, I think something that's really powerful in both is that there's a kind of rejection of the biological, that also means a kind of rejection of perhaps ordinary sex or sex as commonly understood in favor of this kind of odd, rarefied vision of real life and nature isn't good enough. So even, you know, and a straightforward seduction is, is simply prosaic. And actually, I want to take control of your mind, take control of your brain, because this sort of anti-real, hyper-artificial mode of seduction is itself a kind of rejection of what it means to be a person in the world. And I think both uh, Dorian and the seducer, or sorry, both Lord Henry and the seducer characterize this as a kind of appropriation of godlike powers. I am becoming a god because I am 
exerting this creative control over the world by refusing to contend with what Kierkegaard would call in particular the, the actual. And that combination, I think, of seduction through irony and the creation of character and um, an unwillingness to, to contend with or be involved with the world as it is, is for me what really links these two texts and protect, perhaps even speaks to a distinct 19th century ironist vision of the hyper artificial as a realm of sin that is distinct from like pure carnal desire as a realm of sin. Okay. So I want to, I, I, I definitely want to get back to this um, stuff about irony, but I just first want to make sure that I'm understanding you. So are you saying that, you know, the relevant seduction, its goal Earth's telos isn't possession of the other person's body. Like that's like too cheap or <laughs> too banal or too easy. It's not interesting. It's really about possessing them as a person in some way. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Possessing them as a person and even going further and transforming them so that they're not a person in the sense of being a center of consciousness. They're merely a character in your drama. So it's both possession and transformation, but very much of the mind, of the soul, of of something that is not merely as the body, and it's which is as you say characterized as like tawdry or cheap or too easy. Right. Yeah. So in that case, like, because because we all know what possession of the body amounts to, but what? So if we think about, you know, what it would mean to succeed or to attain your goal, so. What does it really mean to possess the person? Is it just that somehow you control them now or somehow they are now just a reflection of you rather than a distinct person? Like, I think, I think that idea of reflection is, is very much there, that they're um, a mirror of the seducer, that their sense of the world in which they live or move or understand them to be is so defined by the seducer. Dorian or sorry Henry or the seducer that they they have no no needs no wants no desires or no sense of who they are except relative to the one that made them and it's a little different in each case I think Lord Henry wants to put himself in in Dorian to make Dorian a mirror of himself in a slightly more straightforward way corrupting him is also creating a kind of miniature self I think with Cordelia in um and so just to sort of recap the plot for, for listeners, um, he basically tricks Cordelia into becoming engaged to him, uh, thus having a kind of what he, call, what he calls the ethical, but like a social relationship with him, then tricks her into breaking off the engagement out of this sort of perverse notion that our love is too high and elevated and special for these bourgeois, dull, things like marriage and, and engagement and mm -hmm. then tricks her into essentially sleeping with him anyway and mm -hmm. but specifically doing so after she has called off the engagement giving up the promise of marriage with him because she thinks now well you know our, we're beyond that and this is a way of experiencing like a truer more rarefied form of love 
And um, the language that the seducer uses, um, it's even more actually kind of erotically loaded than, than what Lord Henry and Wilde do in that text, which is really saying something. He convinces, he uses the language of like, you are this enchanted princess, you are this uh, fisher girl, you are in this, and he, you know, glen of uh, you are in this sort of fairy tale meadow and he he kind of rewrites the story for her so that cordelia's sense of their relationship there's no relationship to either the social codes of 19th century copenhagen or to reality or to a kind of equal love with him she is just in this sort of alternate set of references and signs and ideas about love that he is really um Kind of poisoned her with and so she ends up not just seduced uh, physically but also kind of emotionally ruined having all her ideas uh destroyed which mm -hmm. is, is even more you know of a violation and in, in the text it's clear that like that is a violation that matters her offering herself to him in this way is what matters he doesn't really care exactly about the physical consummation of that relationship right so, so the character guard, <clears throat> unlike the wild, isn't a isn't it's not a novel. It's part of what's actually so. Kierkegaard's a philosopher, but he's not he's not a professional <laughs> philosopher. And um, that is to say, he's, he's not an academic. He's not in. He's not working within a professional context, and so he's always changing his pen names. And he so, but the seducer's diary is not a self standing thing. Um, it's part of a larger work, either or, which is, I think, the first thing Kierkegaard published, correct? Uh, I think it's second. He published concept, well, concept of irony was his doctoral thesis, but I don't remember whether it was actually published and widely available before either or. Yeah, um, I never can. It's, it's his first major work, definitely. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So this is just one part of this larger thing, either or. And now that has to contextualize how we understand it. Yeah. So what is the what is the broader context, you think? So there, there's a twofold element to it because um, within the context of the work, it's so we've got like Victor Aramita, who's this editor who has found a bunch of papers in this, uh, I want to say it's like an antique dresser. There's this whole backstory. But basically, mm -hmm. either or presents us with this sort of character of A, who is this young dandy, and um, Judge Wilhelm, who's a sort of, when I say the ethical, it's very specific to Kierkegaard, but who, who has these sort of bourgeois values of how life ought to be lived and lives by them. And then within the papers of A, there's a sort of sub other papers that were found by this mysterious person who's sort of unclear who they are, but might be called Johannes, but that might also be a reference to Don Juan, because there's also a study of Don Giovanni in the next section. Basically, Kierkegaard intentionally plays around a lot with identity so that there are so many levels of ironic remove before we get to the seducer's diary. It's a story within a story within a fictional um, group of papers found in a chest. And what that does, I think, is because so much of Seducer's Diary and either or, I would argue, is about what it means to be oneself, to be in the world. Um, Kierkegaard used actuality a lot, actuality and possibility as, as his sort of mm -hmm. dialectic. And in playing with the, these, these pseudonyms, there's a sense in which he's also kind of playing with the notion of what it means to kind of create oneself or 
experience elements of oneself removed from what it means to be you, a person in the world. He develops this in his later work is to specify a person before God. And that actuality then becomes a kind of, you know, obviously the word givenness or thrownness is, 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 is sort of that we're backdating these terms, but to be before God is also to kind of embrace oneself as, as a creation, as a, as a being at a fixed point in time, despite the fact that we have these incredible creative capacity for, for invention and imagination. And in the context of the seducer, this becomes a kind of, the seducer's lack of interest in actuality, his desire to sort of create with dizzying freedom this this alternate false world preferable to parallel to that of quote-unquote reality is at the heart of his desire for seduction and so by creating all these these sort of layers this this isn't just a story about an ironic seduction it's an ironic hyper ironic story about an ironic seduction however ironically. Um, we also can't read this without the knowledge that um, around this time, Kierkegaard had a broken off his own engagement with Regina Olson, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. who was like Cordelia in, in this uh, novella, a slightly, or novella-esque text, um, a sort of younger woman of a, from a sort of similarly bourgeois family. And we don't actually know exactly why the engagement was broken off. Um, there's a lot of speculation ranging from, you know, Kierkegaard just was afraid of sex to Kierkegaard um, was dealing with depression to something kind of more uh, perverse or intentional. We, we, we don't, despite the fact that Kierkegaard and actually Regina have written a lot about this, there doesn't seem to be one clear answer. However, that he inexplicably broke with her. And throughout the seducer's diary, there's very clear references to um, to Cordelia, sorry, to Regina, or Regina, Regina Cordelia parallels, including what seem to be a bunch of inside jokes. Among the most famous is uh, there's another suitor that Cordelia has called Edward, and um, the seducer makes some joke like it would be better if he were called Fritz, and he's referring explicitly to uh, a drawing room comedy where like a similar lovelorn character is called Fritz, but actually the uh, other suitor that Regina Olsen ended up marrying was also called Fritz. Right. So there's these yeah. weird jokes about real life peppered through, and that that tension is fascinating, but he simultaneously seems to be in some way working out quite publicly the breaking of this engagement, also in a way that's you know, extremely unflattering to both of them, really. And yet he's also exploring this idea of what does it mean to be oneself versus being a fictional character adjacent to oneself and that that tension i think is it i i don't necessarily feel altogether certain exactly where kierkegaard in this text is kind of aware fully like he is not necessarily writing them as he would decades later a full-throated condemnation of the kind of people who live in the possible uh he is not writing with that sort of full practice in christianity as you know, be oneself, the courage to be oneself before God. This is still so early. And it's so it's, it's unclear what he's doing or how much um, where Kierkegaard is in his development. And so I think what's interesting about both Dorian Gray, as you pointed out, and about Seducer's Diary is the ambiguity and the tension between the kind of the dandy and, as we know, with wild deathbed conversion, the Christian. 
and both, mm-hmm. both texts really do sit at that intersection of their stages on a convergence way, maybe. Yeah. Well, you didn't put it in these terms, but many people do. And so I don't, I don't know if you resist these terms, but many people talk about either or and in, in Kierkegaard's philosophy generally about, you know, the difference between the aesthetic mode of life and the ethical you know, the, the seducer's diary as an example of the aesthetic mode of life that, you know, is, is bad (laughs) that we need to, like, we need to transition to something deeper. Do you, do you agree with that kind of take or is that? Um, I do. I largely do, which is to say, I think that he definitely is interested in something very specific that, you know, he codes as the aesthetic mode of life and kind of does want us to move out of and yet at the same time I think within especially we see this within either or but his Kierkegaard's disdain for a certain vision of the ethical which is to say the ethical as he uses it as a sort of normative Christian conduct in a in an already Christian society or or sort of nominally Christian society where sort of codes of civility and religious codes intersect. And what I think is so interesting about his seduction of Cordelia in this is one of his, his the seducer's arguments is, you know, what does it really mean to be engaged? It's just this sort of like, it's not marriage, it's not a sacrament, it's just sort of this odd stage of convention. And mm-hmm. I think it's worth, while we can of course condemn the seducer, we see also echoes of the Kierkegaard we'll later see in, in Sickness Unto Death and practice in, the Christian, practice in Christianity, where he condemns Christendom, which is to say the idea of a kind of comfortable civic Christianity compared to what he, he talks about as like the scandal of Jesus, the scandal, the offense to reason, that is God becomes man and comes back from the dead and these are things that like should offend us they are not civil they are not comfortable and i think a danger in talking um as as we're often sometimes want to do with kierkegaard of of the aesthetic stage and the ethical stage and then finally the religious stage is to kind of overlook that even in the aesthetic stage there is perhaps something of the real and particularly a real consciousness that the um the normative modes of of sort of christianity merely as social codes for bourgeois 19th century danish society are are lacking in some way and in cordelia's sort of one of the perversities about his seduction of cordelia isn't necessarily just and this is again just my personal reading here that he's um seducing her but also that he's kind of taking her desire for something, you know, for a particular kind of transcendence, taking her awareness that um, perhaps this, this 19th century Copenhagen drawing room is not exactly all there is, and then perverting that. And I think that that's something that the, the aesthetic mode, both in Wilde and in um, Kierkegaard does, which is to say, you know, there is something sclerotic about the way in which a society operates kind of on certain rules that are about preserving a degree of convention and comfort. And then what happens if we kind of 
go beyond those those rules or we we explore something outside it and the the aesthetic answer seems to be this kind of we make ourselves gods we make our own rules or i the artist live by the rule of beauty and genius and yet it's impossible and i think this, this even is, is true of wild um later on although not surely not not as much so as a Kierkegaard there's another image of the Christian life as being similarly transgressive but in a wholly different way and yet without understanding sort of Christ as a parallel opposite figure to the the sort of diabolical esthete I think we we miss the full sweep of the perversity of this kind of seduction which is which is a perversity of a, for a, a perverting of the longing for transcendence. So what I was thinking about when I was reading these and prior to talking to you is that one of the things that they're trying to think through, both of them, I think, is the relationship between the good and, and the beautiful. And then in Wild, in particular, I don't know about Kierkegaard, if this is like really a question for him, but I think Oscar Wilde is struggling with this a question of what's the point of literary art? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like, what's the point of art generally? But but really what's the point of literary art and how are we to think of beauty within that context? And it seems to me that there are obviously a lot of different ways you can think about the good and the beautiful, but the, the question is to what extent they're connected. Now you, you could come from within the tradition that takes them to be very strongly connected going back to Plato, or you could think of them as just different, right? Things could be, things can be beautiful, right? Or they can be good, or at least there's a very big difference between something's being beautiful and something's being morally good, um, that these are just maybe different values, probably incommensurable. It seems to me that, and please correct me if, if, if I'm missing something, but it seems to me like these two texts are thinking of them as more incommensurable. I think that's right. And I think that it's, it, it's a tension that they're both working out. I don't know that I could talk, sort of point to a programmatic, you know, this is what wild things. I think that there, I would argue, I, I think I would argue that the problem or where the disparity comes specifically for these writers um, is a sense that a, a definition of goodness that I think um, for Wilde, and I think a little for Kierkegaard, or at least Kierkegaard through the mind of the seducer, there's a vision of goodness as, as you said, like social goodness being something that is kind of dispensed with right away as so palpably like drawing room civility being, Mm -hmm. because that can be easily be dispensed with. um, There isn't, it is easy to present beauty as sort of elucidated by like, Lord Henry or by the seducer as a separate option. I think the question of is there a a different good, an ultimate good, a higher good beyond conventional morality is something that these texts leave open because they they do kind of stack the deck in that way. They present it as, you know, they present really as a tension between goodness and conventional morality until perhaps like at the end we see a glimpse of a kind of evil that's different merely from living outside the, outside the bounds of conventional norms. And I think that what's sort of fascinating to me about the way in which they treat beauty as well is that the kind of beauty they're talking about 
is not, it's not natural beauty. It's not even a kind of artistic beauty that takes its cue from nature. It's a very particular vision of man-madeness or, you know, pure artificiality that exists for its own sake, specifically as a statement of human power vis-a-vis -vis nature. And um, just in terms of the, the angle I'm bringing to this, I, of course, can't help but be influenced by the, the yellow book um, uh, that Corrupt Dorian Gray, which is, um, it's never said in the text, but we are pretty sure it's meant to be a Joris Carl Heath novel against nature, Arabor, uh, which is from 1884, I believe. And that novel is very much about uh, the idea that nature has had her day. She is a withered old crone. And so this sort of dyspeptic esthete tries to lock himself away in his refined hermitage where he has nothing but the art he has chosen and he even like stops eating because he wants to exist only in the sort of self-sufficient half machine way. And I think that vision, not of beauty and goodness, but of kind of nature and the artificial is, even when the language of beauty is used, it's often used in this kind of way to mean man-made perfection and man-made perfection being specifically aligned to human creative freedom, untrammeled freedom, unrestricted by either social codes or by like biology, the laws of nature, like Desacentes in, in Against Nature tries to stop eating because God, you know, God forbid he has to be an ordinary mortal that eats. And it's, I find it so sort of tricky to go into these works as someone who like responds really strongly to beauty and is also very, at this point, suspicious of my own responses to beauty because I'm so susceptible. Um, you know, where, where, how could we talk about like good beauty or, or beauty as something distinct from either the fruit of, you know, human self-making and human freedom or simply a reproduction of what already exists and is good. And I think that something that comes up in these texts, I don't think that these authors, or something these authors leave open, is a vision of specifically perversity or some, this idea that what, what we might call as evil beauty is specifically, it is not like a force from without so much of a twisting of something that is good. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's it, particularly, we see that in Cordelia, her desire for love, her desire for a kind of meaning in her life, like good desires get twisted into this kind of aestheticized notion of the story that she's in. And, mm -hmm. you know, to, to, to say beauty is evil because it's pulling her in one direction isn't exactly quite right. And yet it's, 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 it is specifically this kind of but this perversity is something that we find, you know, consciously in the seducer as well, and an enjoyment of taking things and flipping it upon its head. I'd argue we see this in like the irony of Henry as well. And I wonder whether there's a way to sort of talk about, not just about beauty and goodness, but about artificiality, nature, perversity, and kind of leave open the possibility that beauty can be perverted very easily as something very different from beauty as a force for evil or even as a, just a totally neutral force. Yeah. So I think, you know, part of however we work that out is going to be how we think of artifice in one venerable tr tradition of thought, art, which 
is a translation of what the Greeks called techne or craft is an intellectual virtue, right? Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a habit of making, mm-hmm. right? The assessment of it is in the work made. So it's a, it's a, it's a kind of habit. It's not the same as virtue. It's really, it's, it's really similar, um, but it, but it's not the same. It's similar insofar as it's a, it's a habit or a, or a disposition that I think is probably not at all (laughs) Oscar Wilde is, Mm -hmm. is thinking of it. So, so that might be like one thing. I mean, so, but just, just to get into the actual text, because there's so much here to talk about. And we're just going to get to like scratch the surface, um, which is fine because hopefully it'll just make people want to read it. But there's this preface. And so, so like, so like the form in which we read the picture of Dorian Gray is not the form in which it first came out. It first came out serialized. And then I guess he made some changes um, because he got, because, because he got all this pushback Mm -hmm. and he got all this flack. But then like the one big change that he made was he threw this preface onto it. And it's just called the preface. Yeah. I mean, some of the things that he says in this preface that are, are really uh, striking and, and apropos just, you know, look, what's the artist? The artist is the creator of beautiful things. He says, those who find ugly meanings in beautiful things are corrupt without being charming. This is a fault. Also talking about the artists, uh, they are the elect to whom beautiful things mean only beauty. There's no such thing as a moral or an immoral book. Books are well-written or they're badly written. That is all. And then, you know, towards the end, he says, we can forgive a man for making a useful thing so long as he does not admire it. The only excuse for making a useless thing is that one admires it intensely. All art is quite useless. So what, what's he doing there? <laughs> Is he just defending himself? Is it a manifesto? What is this? I mean, I think it's a manifesto, but also in the fact, but also trolling and the fact that it is trolling is part of itself a manifesto, which is to say, I think that there is like, he is talking in cocktail party um, epigrams precisely because there is a sort of, yes, it's a challenge to the reader, but I don't, I, I, I think that the, the sort of sheer ridiculous, the, exuberant ridiculousness of what he's saying is you know the, the medium is the message he he i think i think that he does genuinely wish to convey a kind of complete lack of interest in the moral content of a work uh, as he understands it so that we may only assess the lapidary gem-like style of the word so that we might appreciate the sort of language sentences and yet i i do i mean i wonder what we know about whether the the degree to which his love of beauty and this is something that i've perhaps come to with time reflects a kind of you know not just a sort of like a particular vision of nihilism of you know nothing matters and therefore there isn't even really hope in a transcendent power of art or that, you know, art does something to the soul such that, you know, beauty, we respond to beauty wherever we find it. I don't think there's any kind of positive vision. There's simply a kind of enjoyment of meaninglessness. And I think that perhaps we are, or I would be too hard on Wilde to say like, he is is a nihilist. 
I think if anything, again, he is responding to, as we've talked about, a very particular, like uh, Kierkegaard, a very particular set of social circumstances. And I don't know that Wilde has an understanding of morality, of the good, that is not like part and parcel with social codes. I think like mm -hmm. Kierkegaard, that's the, that's the conflict he sees. And mm -hmm. so, you know, of course, it's very silly when, you know, people blush and roll their eyes at my work. I don't want to be pleasing the critics. I don't want to be pleasing the populace. Um, but I don't think, and, and here's where I think he's actually differs from someone like Hizmol or, or uh, Barfi Dokvali, who is a big writer on, on you know, dandyism and irony. Um, I think they perhaps have a more uh, troubling, even diabolical conception of art. I think Wilde's wild concerns aren't with the good in such a way as it's quite easy for him to say this, um, which is always why I, I am always curious about Wilde's sort of later conversion and the degree to which, um, you know, how aesthetic is his deathbed conversion? Is it merely the end of a good story that he becomes a Catholic mm -hmm. and, you know, surrounds himself with incense and beauty at the end, or is it a kind of reversal? And that's, it's, I almost don't want to know because I want to just think the best of Wilde or, but um, yeah. what do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know, but I'm not going to judge his soul. <laughs> but there's certainly the Catholicism of his time, unlike the Catholicism uh, post-Vatican II, had a kind of aesthetic draw to it which has mostly and intentionally been, been, been pushed out in a series of, in my opinion, misguided reforms. And, and, and this is actually like, this comes up in the plot in uh, Dorian Gray, you know, cause, cause Dorian is like a collector of beautiful things. Mm -hmm. And so he's one of, you know, he's a collector of vestments from, from, from the Catholic church. And, and I think some of the liturgical accoutrements, I can't remember exactly, but yeah, he's, you know, and, and, and he actually talks about how he would go to mass just because of the beauty of it, you know, the grandeur of it. And, and yeah, anybody who goes, you know, to the old mass knows how, <laughs> how extraordinarily beautiful it, it really was and, and really intoxicating in a, in a, in a, in a lot of ways. But let's, um, Let's just like jump in to the picture of Dorian Gray and just kind of talk about the, the main characters and the plot. So obviously we have Dorian Gray, uh, who's, who's the central character. And when we're first introduced to him, he's this Adonis, you know, he's this godlike in his beauty and, and his charm. He's very young. I mean, I'm not, I'm not really sure how old he is when we first meet him. Maybe he's like 17. Yeah, he's a, he's a teenager. Yeah, and and he's he's an aristocrat. And we first meet him. He is sitting uh, for a portrait that's being painted of him by this guy Basil. What's Basil's last name? Uh, Howard. Basil. Basil. Basil Howard. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I have to affect my my British accent. Basil, who also who who's an artist. I'm assuming he's also an aristocrat. And so so he's drawing this portrait of him, and then there's this other figure um, who comes to completely dominate Dorian's life, and that is Lord Henry Wotton, aka Harry. And you know, Dorian is sort of like 
when we first meet him, but we get the impression that he's innocent, that he's very green, he's naive, maybe he's very impressionable at least. And then Lord Henry is, you know, he's basically a hedonist. Well, he's a certain sophisticated kind of hedonist. I guess you would call him a dandy. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, so what do you what what exactly is meant by dandy besides someone who dresses in you know resplendent finery? Uh, Barbie Dorvidi uh, wrote this biography of Beau Brummel. Uh, the mid-19th century, where he says that what makes a dandy, it's not the clothes, it's not the fashion, it's a dandy is one who produces astonishment in others without ever being uh, surprised oneself. Um, so the heart of dandyism is a kind of, it's, it's not about the clothing, it's not about um, sort of anything visual. For Dorfidi and the sort of followers of Dorfidi, it's specifically about an ironic stance, the ability to have an audience to manipulate an audience and yet to be in a sense impassable and he he likens the dandy to like the the spartan myth of the boy who hides the fox that he's not supposed to be hunting under his tunic and the fox like kills him but he doesn't say a word because he is not going to admit that he stole the fox and that that vision of ironic disengagement is to me at the heart of dandyism and i think that in that certainly in how he talks in his sort of ironic posture of looking at the world uh, a bit askance, uh, Lord Henry is absolutely a dandy. Yeah, so he's definitely he's definitely a guy who is very detached in a sense. That is to say, he's not going to be invested in other people's good. <laughs> he's very invested in his own good, I think, you know, and, and his, I don't know if this is part of dandyism, but you know, he thinks of a good life or the life that's worth living as a life that is dedicated to certain kinds of pleasure, mm -hmm. right? Certain kinds of, of refined pleasures and, you know, avoidance of suffering, right? So don't, and that's, and that's part of not being invested in other people because once you become really invested in other people and they're good, you're going to suffer, like that's just obvious. So you won't. So you won't do that. There's like all of these like darkly comical scenes where you know people die in a variety of 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 ways, and Lord Henry's like, "Oh, don't think about it." You know, they like they accidentally kill this guy uh, while they're hunting, and Lord Henry's like, you know, mad because it ruined the hunting for the day. He's, he's just totally annoyed that it ruined his chance of pleasure for the day. But he's also like counseling Dorian, like, don't think about it. You know, yeah. um, it's grotesque to think about. Don't think about it. And so, yeah, so he's very detached, but, but, he, but at the same time, he's a, he's a kind of hedonist. Although he calls himself, where he talks about a new hedonism, which I think is really interesting. Um, and I think, cause one of the things that I find striking about Lord Henry is he does, as you say, he wants, he enjoys pleasure and yet he's not like kind of enthralled to it that he's he's bored more than he's like chasing immediate either or rather let me rephrase that his boredom seems more central than any particular desire for any one thing um and i and the, the idea that they're like there is very little on earth that can kind of assuage his boredom for too long because once he's tried something it's dull and, and he talks um, to Dorian about this, uh, 
a new hedonism where you just be always looking for new sensations. Um, and I, mm -hmm. I that, that sense of novelty is interesting to me because I think this is where the idea of the sort of perverse creator comes in, that the, the sort of sins of the world even are, are not sufficient. We have to come up with new sins. We have to come up with new ways to kind of be bad or experience pleasure because the, 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 the world is, is so lacking, you know, he, it isn't just that he's drinking a lot and eating good food or, or, or having too much sex or anything that's kind of perhaps straightforward. It's this desire to even be superior to those who simply pursue that kind of hedonism that, that I think combines his disengagement with um, a perverse pleasure seeking. And this too, not, not to say everything comes back to he's small, but uh, in another in novel, he's small talks about the sin of, uh, or has one of his characters talk about the sin of Pygmalionism and says, this is the greatest, um, this is the greatest sin one could commit uh, an artist who like creates his character and then basically rapes her. Like the Pygmalion who creates the Galatea and then has a, uh, the incest, the joy of incest of like possessing that which he has created so that God hasn't even created that. I think that, um, again, Hizmol tends to be more explicit in these ideas, but we see some of that too in Lord Henry, his just complete lack of interest in engaging with the world as it is and a desire to kind of aestheticize, like it's sin for sin's sake almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Although I think he's repulsed by vulgarity, mm -hmm. you know, like, like he doesn't, I mean, like he does seem attached to some, some ideal of like being refined because he's like, you know, pretty disgusted, I think by, I don't know, something that would seem like merely vulgar. And it, it might be sort of hard to track what he thinks that is. But I, but I, but I, I think part of it is, is necessarily connected to his class, <laughs> you know, his, his sense of being from a, a distinct class, a better class. I mean, that seems like a huge part of his self-conception. I don't think he would think you could be a middle-class dandy. Could you be mm. a middle-class dandy? No, I mean, not really, no. I think there's a version where one could create oneself such that like one's cost didn't matter, but dandyism is always put as aristocratic. You know, you, you are not like the others. You are not like the crowd. You are singular in some way. And I think particularly for Henry, that does mean a, probably a, a nobility of birth as well. Although I think mm -hmm. the, the, the sort of most important element is that you are unlike the others rather than you are like those of us. Like it is, it is a specific aristocracy rather than just saying it's fine as long as you belong to this one class. Yeah, it's a bit psychopathic. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it sort of reminds me of, um, oh, why can I not think of that Brett Easton Ellis novel? It was made into a movie. Oh, American Psycho? Yeah. 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 Is there, like he, like Lord Henry one sort of reminds me of American Psycho uh, a little bit. <laughs> anyway, so, so anyway, so we have these three characters now. So we, so we've, we've talked about Harry's influence on 
Dorian, but Dorian has this pretty profound influence on Basel. Which mm-hmm. I guess we should talk about that because because Basel is you know the the actual artist in the mm-hmm. story. So yeah, what is Dor- what is Dorian's impact on Basel, and what's really the significance of that? Yeah, I mean, I, of the characters in the book, I, I have the most sympathy for Basil. Basil, he 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 does seem to lo- like he is bewitched by. Dorian's beauty and I mean I think it's fair to say he doesn't exactly see Dorian as a person beyond his beauty but he is deep he is the only character he is fully affected in a way like Lord Henry only produces an effect um Dorian is affected by Henry produces as an effect on Basil and then ironically because Basil has this art he has created this art and yet given that his art you know insofar as the painting and Dorian change places Basil is simply, you know, the irony is that he is the artist who is actually the ultimate spectator. He is, he is watching the art that is Dorian, the man slash art, um, as opposed to the painting, which is the one that because it is now dying and subject to decay is no longer a piece of art. He is, he is watching that which Dorian has created. And so we sort of see him dethroned from this would-be creator to just you know, a spectator who ultimately uh, dies because um, of 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 his love, because he of his sort of obsessive um, relationship with with Dorian. And I think it's it's I hadn't realized until I read the book this this past time precisely how kind of powerless Basil is not only because he is in, you know in love in some way with Dorian, but also because he loses his his artistic ability to this, this diabolical pack takes even that from him. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of, um, on Aschenbach in death in Venice, mm. <laughs> the, you know, the, the Tatsu, the boy that he falls in love with, which also eventually kills him and renders him, you know, kind of inert, um, as an, as an artist. So anyway, so, so Basel creates this, portrait of Dorian Gray and um Dorian is is enraptured by it and he he articulates seeing he articulates a wish which apparently is is granted so so he's so he's really drawn to this portrait but the portrait also horrifies him because he realizes that the portrait has captured him I don't know. It's something like the the zenith of his beauty, mm-hmm. and like it's all downhill from here. You know, he's he's going to decline, um, and he's really he's really sad and repulsed by the prospect. So, in here, I'm I'm just reading from the text. Um, How sad it is, murmured Dorian Gray, with his eyes still fixed upon his own portrait. How sad it is! I shall grow old and horrible and dreadful. But this picture will remain always young. It will never be older than this particular day of June. If it were only the other way, if it were I who was always to be young and the picture that was to grow old for that, for that, I would give everything. Yes, there's nothing in the whole world I would not give. I would give my soul for that. He's he's willing to trade his soul. It's sort of like a Faustian bargain, mm-hmm. except there's no... You know, there's no Mephistopheles around uh, to make a wager to him. But 
But yeah, he just sort of like offers his. Oh, th- I mean, that's what's so fascinating to me as well is like, even the way he does it is itself a kind of ironic cocktail party quip. Like he isn't consciously making a deal with, even if we want to say, all right, Lord Henry is the devil. He is not, you know, signing away in blood. Even the way in which he loses his soul is through the kind of easy irony of saying meaningless things. Um, and I, I love that, that right after that, that, that the sort of joke they make is that Basil's going to have a problem with this, not because his friend uh, would lose his soul, but because that would ruin his painting. Right. Yeah. And, and so anyway, the, the conceit of the novel is that his wish is granted. Right? Mm-hmm. So, so actually, um, Dorian Gray does remain uh, forever youthful and beautiful. Um, he doesn't age, but, his, but the portrait of him, which he ends up walking away, like in the attic, basically, uh, because he realizes what's going on, the, the portrait of him becomes ugly and horrific over time. And it's not just that, it's not just that like he's aging in the picture, though he is, but he's becoming repulsive because the painting, um, in a way, it's like the physical incarnation of his sin mm-hmm. or his, his spiritual ugliness becomes physically or visually realized in the painting. So, so in real life, his visage, his visage is, you know, eternally youthful and, and beautiful, but um, it's a, it's a mask somehow over the actual reality, which is portrayed in the, in the portrait. Because, because the first change that Dorian Gray notices is a mark of cruelty around mm-hmm. his mouth. And this comes about from his exchange with Sybil Vane, which we definitely need to talk about because I have some questions. So Dorian Gray falls in love. Um, he falls in love with a very young actress. I believe she's like 16, maybe she's 17. Um, and she's not like a famous actress. I don't know. He somehow like stumbles upon a kind of not important theater. And and anyway, he sees this young woman acting in various roles and he just is completely bowled over by her, both in terms of her physical beauty, but also like the beauty of her art. Like, I guess she's a really good actress. And so he decides that he wants to marry her and, you know, he, he pledges his love to her. And then he <clears throat> announces to Basil and Harry that, you know, he's fallen in love. He's going to get married and they got to come see her. So... He, so he takes his friends to watch her play Juliet in Romeo and Juliet. And it's an absolute disaster. It's like the worst acting that anyone has ever seen. I think by the end of the play, like people have just left <laughs> or they're like, they're like booing her. Um, and Dorian is horrified. He's absolutely horrified. And he goes backstage and he's like, you've killed my love you've destroyed my love. How could you do this? I don't love you anymore. And she's very confused because she's like, well, the reason that I can't act anymore is because I now know what real love is like. And all this other stuff is a simulacrum of that like really good thing, which is all I now care about. And Dorian is just very cruel to her and um, basically just dumps her and, and walks off into the night and later that night, she kills herself. 
and Harry informs uh, Dorian of this the next day. And this, this is the first sign of change in his portrait as a mark of cruelty around the mouth. But what do we think about his love for, for Sybil Vane? I mean, it's, just, it's, it's fascinating because it is such an encapsulation of that kind of ironic mood and then that love. The idea that like something that is genuine is, un- is not just undesirable, but that it's repulsive, that only artifice or only the kind of created aesthetic mood is is of any value because there is something like vulgar I think is such a great word here but like there is something vulgar about that which is real that which has not been polished by like a mastermind artist and you know it's it's so funny to read this as a 13 year old and be like oh true beauty is artifice I get it now and then read it as an adult and be like this is truly horrible and I am, I am sickened yeah, by reading right. this scene. And I, you know, I, 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 it, I, I think back to like my teenage self, like how did I think that this was like a sign of some greater truth? But mm. I think it's, it, it's, it's fascinating precisely what, what the like rejection of the, the natural is there, the rejection of like the, the actual. Um, because- Yeah, because he, he only loves her as an actress mm-hmm. right and so like he has no he does not know anything about her um he's not interested in her as an actual person mm-hmm. um he's in love with her as an actress and as soon as she isn't like this ideal of an actress i mean even if it's only for one night that's it. There's no, there's, there's nothing more to it. I mean, is that, is that fair? Like he's in, he doesn't actually love her. Absolutely. No, he, he, I mean, he loves, you could, I don't even know that he loves the role she plays. He takes delight in the idea that he is living in this kind of elevated dramatic sphere. He is living in Romeo and Juliet. He is living in as you like it because he is, possessing Juliet, Rosalind, what have you. But there's, yeah, there seems to be no indication of, of real love at any point, just a kind of self-divinization of I, I exist in this rarefied artificial space. Yeah, and then it gets, it gets even darker. <laughs> so, um, so, so she kills herself. And like at first, you know, he's horrified and he, and he feels bad. Um, which, of course, playing the role that he does, um, Lord Henry's like, no, like you, you can't feel bad about this. But then he comes to have an aesthetic appreciation for it, right? Mm-hmm. As tragedy. Mm-hmm. Yep. And and that to me, I wish I could find the passage here. I, I you know what? I didn't mention this yet, but I don't think she ever even knew his name. She only knew him as Prince Charming, <laughs> which I think is, I think it's important, right? She doesn't even know his name, but basically like he comes to have this aesthetic appreciation. So at first he thinks, at first he thinks like, I am cruel. This is terrible. He, he actually goes back to, he, he sort of realizes that this is 
that this is bad and like kind of wants to make amends, it's, it's, it's too late, obviously, for him to do that. But the reason that he realizes that it's bad is because he sees the change in the portrait, mm-hmm. right? And I think it's pretty obvious that the portrait is his conscience, right? His, his mm-hmm. moral conscience, which at the end of the story, um, well, I don't know. Should we talk about the end? Yeah, why not? Okay. Yeah, okay. Spoiler alert. At the end of the story, he attempts to kill his conscience. So he finally, like, attacks the portrait. Like, he's like, I'm just going to destroy this portrait after he decides that the only way out of all of this is to confess Mm -hmm. and that he's not going to do that, right? He's not going to confess. So he has to kill his conscience. Um, So he stabs the portrait. And in stabbing the portrait, he dies. And when he does that, everything switches Mm -hmm. such that he's a corpse of an old, disgusting man, unrecognizable to his servants except for his rings. And the portrait is what it originally was. What what is the significance of that? If, If we take the destruction of the portrait to be an attempt to kill his conscience... I mean, I think that something that I find a little, not disappointing about the end, but I do wonder whether, you know, if he is trying to to just kill his conscience, there's a sort of, you know, overarching justice to it that of course, of course he can't, you can't do that. There is, the self-creation is an impossibility, even in this sort of Faustian bargain situation, you know, you, you cannot untether yourself. From, from who you've been. I don't necessarily, but I think that the, the portrait doubled both as his conscience, but also as a kind of kind of reminder of, of reality itself, by which I mean, the idea yeah. that, it, you know, the, it's the opposite of the dandy, the dandy who astonishes, but it's not effective. That this painting, in this painting, there is a consonance between Dorian's behavior and how that is externalized. He there is he is not able to you know the painting Dorian is a Dorian who, that is affected by who he is, what he does. At once a form of conscience and a kind of reminder of of actuality. And when you know Dorian tries and stabs it and says you know I want to he's trying to untether himself from any remnant of like living in the world with consequence. And that's the point at which reality breaks back in uh, or reality through this sort of law of fairy tale fantasy law and 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 he dies um so but at the same time it is difficult because it it, it is you know this what is it four sentences four paragraphs it's it it's it, it, it is sort of right at the end crash bang corpse and yet totally so much of the book is is written in that like lush and lapidary style and it kind of luxuriates and all the sin that it is quite abrupt mm-hmm. and almost tacked on feeling or at least that was my experience of reading it is like you you don't read the last few lines and you're still in the perfumed garden of the first chapter right no i mean and that's why i always read this novel is very moralizing mm-hmm. i mean it, it and and it, I mean, it just straightforwardly seems to be saying something at the end about mm-hmm. 
the inability of someone really to kill their conscience. And, and, and frankly, I mean, obviously I have no idea what Oscar Wilde thinks, but you know, I think, I, I do think that human beings have a conscience, um, that it, that it's natural to the human to mm. have a conscience and that it's impossible to kill it. Now you can deaden it and you can, wow, you can really distract yourself from it. <laughs> I mean, the art of distraction from the pangs of conscience is a real art form. People are very good at it, but you can't actually really kill it without, in some sense, killing yourself. That is to say, without deadening your reason because of the, the way in which it, it structures your reason. But even, I mean, that's how I read it now because I've thought philosophically a lot about what I think conscience is, but even when I read it at 15, <laughs> I was like, it really struck me as like, wow, you know, I didn't, one, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> so I was like, really totally shocked at the end. Cause, um, you know, you're going along and you're like, where's this going? Yeah. You know, it's totally wild. It's totally perverse. And then I just felt like you got hit with morality at the end. I don't, I mean, what's the alternative reading? I mean, I don't, I mean, I think that one could, if one wanted, and I don't do this, but you, there's a, there's a sort of the version of, oh, he has to tack on the end to appeal to the censors. And he's got to, you know, the same way Hayes, Co you know, Hayes Code movies had to have a certain kind of ending. And you read between the lines and say, well, like, Wilde really didn't want that moralistic ending. He just had to have it. And I think that there are certainly people who, who do read wild like that or read the kind of morality as being pro forma but mm -hmm. i I, I find know. that so unconvincing mm. i find that so unconvincing because what was the story really about then mm. <laughs> i mean honestly like here's a guy who's totally self-destructing right um, I mean, he's reached this point of absolute crisis where the conflict between, you know, the mask and, and, and what the mask is trying to hide from everyone becomes too much of a crisis for him. Like he can't, he can't deal with it anymore. Right. So, so he's literally trying to, I mean, what, what sense would we make of that crisis if it was just completely unresolved and like, yeah. because the, the crisis is happening, the, the, like the whole thing, right. Is reaching to this, to this point of, of absolute crisis for Dorian Gray and where he's, I mean, towards the end, you know, he's like fainting and he's, he's, una he's unable to enjoy, right. Mm -hmm. He's, he's unable to keep going in this aesthetic life. Um, it's just kind of got to the point where it's no longer pleasing him. Yeah. And it's no longer pleasing him because he has this conscience, right? Which he can't, he compulsively, right? He compulsively goes up to that attic. Like he can't not look at himself as he really is, um, even though he doesn't want to. It's, I mean, my question would be for that reading where it's just tacked on the end to please the censors, which didn't work, <laughs> by the way. But like, if that's true, then what was the story ever really about? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm inclined to, I mean, I think what's difficult with WILD is I, I think that there's a tension there. And one of the reasons that the tension or why people are kind of, why it could be difficult to kind of see the moralism is that WILD's language is so inextricable from the kind of aesthetic mode he writes about. So the, where WILD kind of Gives, turns our attention are the the languid beautiful paragraphs about perfumed hyacinths where mm -hmm. the decay creeps them slowly and I think it is true I I, I, am, I completely agree with you in that I do think this is a study I mean maybe the, the way that I would think about it is to say this is a study of decay this is a study of perversity it is a moralizing work and yet at every point Wilde's unable to resist like making the perverse beautiful as appealing as possible you know that's where his where his use of language comes to the forefront that's where his imagery comes to the forefront and so it, it, it perhaps less that that the sort of ambiguity is less that you know there's a reading where the ending is just tacked on and more that in writing this moral text while just a little bit in love with evil or a little mm. bit thrall to evil, perhaps is a better term. And that mm. that means that we're, you know, or maybe we just are, as readers, or at least I as a clearly extremely susceptible reader, I'm just susceptible to those sort of wicked passages more than to the structure of the end, or at least was it 13, I'm not sure. But I think I think we yeah. do become, we come, become complicit in beauty to a certain extent in reading it because Wilde's language is so, finely crafted well it's interesting i mean there's you know there's like the whole dangers of reading thing um and which which goes way back you can find it even mm -hmm. in dante but i mean i guess like i don't necessarily i mean there is a tension there between writing beautifully about horrible things it's the central tension of lolita right i mean it's a fantastically beautiful novel about child rape. So, you know, what do, what do we do with that? But then I think about somebody like Flannery O'Connor, who, or even Edgar Allan Poe, who anybody writing in this kind of Gothic grotesque tradition where they're writing about freaky, awful, evil things in, in a very beautiful way. Now for, for Flannery O'Connor, there is a, there is the action of grace in the story so that we can look on all the murder <laughs> and and the other forms of perversions as um occasions you know for for grace but she does write about them beautifully mm -hmm. and 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 we are um i mean i i, I mean i think one can write about morally ugly things mm. in an aesthetically pleasing way. And maybe there's, you know, there's, there's a certain danger there, but I think it's, I think it's just, but that danger is in any, I mean, think about, think about Plato on beauty or think mm. about Aquinas on the good, right? So, 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 so think about Aquinas' theory of vice. Every vice is an appetite for the good. <laughs> Every vicious person is going after something actually good, right? But in a disordered, messed up way. Think about Alcibiades at the end of the symposium, 
he's a train wreck. He's a drunk. He's a train wreck. He's completely miserable, you know, but in some, but, but it was all for love. <laughs> right. I mean, Alcibiades is sort of like, you know, if, if, if love is this impulse to be, to be drawn up by beauty, well, that could go well or poorly. <laughs> Right. In Alcibiades, it goes very poorly in part because he's not, you know, it's sort of like his fault in a way he gets distracted or he gets stuck on a, on a lower level, but he's humiliated. Mm -hmm. He's absolutely humiliated. And, and so I just, I just think there's always this, you know, like, like good and evil and ugly and beauty and, you know, love and humiliation. I mean, these are very intimately bound mm -hmm. up with one another, right? And you can't, there's so like, all these things are dangerous. I mean, you know? for me, the way that I, that I've been trying to reconcile it as a writer and, you know, someone who like loves beauty and likes writing fiction and also is like very suspicious of certain kinds of aestheticizing is to think, you know, for, uh, for me, the, the sort of, the works that I that I love or that I respond to now are ones with a kind of very particular attention to the particular. And I think something that, you know, we see in, in Dorian Gray and his love of, of Sybil is, 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 you know, he does not see her as she is. He sees her in these various guises. And she, as you pointed out, sees him as Prince Charming. And I wonder whether, you know, what does it look like to take beautiful, careful, attentive language and apply it to the specificity of a person to mm -hmm. um, to get, you know, what does it mean to, to love someone and, and who they are rather than projecting kind of associations and illusions onto them. And what does it look like to kind of write, even to whether it's to write about evil or to write about morally depraved things or to write about, you know, ordinary things with a kind of attention to the human person to what it means to be that individual rather than, you know, as the seducer does reducing Cordelia into, you know, the ingenue for his scheme with no interest in who she is as a person or uh, the way that Dorian looks at Sybil Vane as just a kind of conduit. And I, I, I'm always kind of curious about this kind of, and I'm, you know, what does it mean to pay attention and to kind of take all the, observing capacity of language and hone it in and, and for me my hope is like that's that's where we can find the difference between like the kind of narrativizing aestheticizing of a Dorian uh, or Henry or or a seducer who want to flatten the world to make it more simple to make it more dull sure through you know likening it to primal myth and a kind of loving beauty that makes space for who that person is. Like, I want to read the book about Civil Vane, the person. And that's, that's kind of, you know, where, where I'm willing to, to wager or make the bet in terms of being someone who loves beauty, but also, you know, can that beauty be applied to a thing, to a specific and not just to, ah, uh, yes, women, those lovely cat-like, perfumed creatures who remind me of Roland mm -hmm. or whatever it is that uh -huh. going on about. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, last question. So my oldest daughter, Gianna is 13. Do you think this is a book that she should read or is it a moral book? Is it a dangerous mm -hmm. book? Would it potentially, <laughs> uh, is it? Yeah. 
I think maybe to, to say not read unsupervised, which is to say, I wish that after I'd read, I'll say it only for my own, you know, as a 13 year old, I wish that after I'd read Dorian Gray, I'd talk to someone about it. I'd work through it. I thought, what, where, where is it trying to push me and how am I responding to that and how to place the process that, and you know, who knows, maybe if I'd read it in a, a class setting or a really good class setting, I would have had a different response to it. Um, I'm always of the opinion, not that books shouldn't be read, because I think that opening yourself up to even a bad book, seeing where it's going, the questions it's asking, where the good might be found in it. I don't think that there's any book like a human person could have written that is like irredeemably bad. Um, but I do think that there is a, a process to reading that can't just be Dorian style credulousness going, yes, fill me with your ideas book. Um, so, <laughs> you know, supervised reading, reading with a discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe I'll see if she wants to take a crack at it. All right. Well, this was really fun. You've been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy and theology podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by William Dethridge. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes or on Spotify. We're also on the app Lyceum. And you can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at Pod, and we're also on Facebook at Sacred and Profane Love. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us on Patreon. Go to www.patreon.com slash eudaimoniapod. As always, I'd like to thank our most recent patrons for their monthly support. So many thanks goes out to Peter Flowers, Michael Martinek, Mark Pitlick, Mary McComb OP, Megan Purple, Joseph Tullock, Lucas Simoez, Justin Gomez, Edward, Brandon Taylor, Evan Taylor, D. Wagner, Douglas Shea Westfall, Charlie, Kevin Clemens, David Thompson, and Tori O'Dwyer. For our next episode, I'll be joined by the theologian Matthew Rothus Moser to talk about Dante's Inferno. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading. Thank you.